0: Um, his supporters have called you a snake. They use mm-hmm. the snake emoji for you. They've called you a traitor. Um, and, and the senator said last night, uh, he, he responded, he said, I condemned that. And he's distancing himself from what his supporters have done. But I wanted to ask, um, if, if that rose to your level of consciousness, uh, if, you, if you were aware of that was going on, if you have any reaction to that, or, or to his uh, comments about it last night? You know, it's, it's not just about me. I think there's a real problem with this online bullying and sort of organized nastiness. And I'm not just talking about ooh said mean things.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politic, Politic, Politic program. For March 6th, 2020, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young. And that, to begin the show, was... Elizabeth Warren on Rachel Maddow's program talking about the organized nastiness of the Sanders campaign supporters. We'll have much more on Elizabeth Warren in a moment. We also have a great interview. I was very, very pleased with how this went about political hobbyists, specifically people that view... Politics like sports. And uh, I'm just going to let you know, he's not a big fan of it. So you will hear me ask the, per- the, 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 the interview subject here, the author of this book, whether or not I am actively hurting America by doing this podcast. So stay tuned for that. But first, uh, man, yesterday... All my troubles seem so far away. That has to be the theme song for Bernie Sanders 2020 right now. The last time I did a Friday show, I was in South Carolina. And things still looked very rosy. Things looked rosy for Bernie. Super Tuesday was going to be the moment. And now, one week later, everything's... Changed. And 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 let me just tell you, guys, by the next Friday show that I'm going to do, the, the, the tenor of this race might be when will Bernie drop out? Because I I gotta tell you, folks, when you look out on the horizon and you see the oncoming clouds, they look. Mean. Let's let's get a, a quick state of the race right now. We're past Super Tuesday. We are rapidly, over the next three weeks, going to have the majority of delegates already spoken for. And here are the main contests. On March 10th, that's Tuesday, we have the following primaries. Idaho, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington. The two biggest prizes there are are Michigan and Washington now? Bernie is doing very well in Washington. Real Clear Politics has him at twenty three point five to Biden's fifteen point five. But there really have not been a lot of uh, recent polls there. The most recent one was uh, the fifteenth through the eighteenth of February. Obviously, a lot has changed since then. But based on some of the turnout at his at his rallies, Washington looks good. That is 89 delegates. The richest prize in the game is Michigan. And those polls aren't so good. The most recent poll is a Detroit News WDIV poll that has Sanders at 23, Biden at 29. Now, if Sanders in Michigan sounds familiar to you, it should, four years ago, it was a part of the biggest polling error that we saw in the 2016 race, I guess, until the general election, but it had Hillary up by like double digits and Bernie wound up winning outright. So obviously there is support for Sanders in Michigan. And similarly, he was running against a candidate Sanders was in 2016. That was very strong with African-American voters. African-American voters dominate the Democratic electorate of the city of Detroit. But Bernie really needs to either keep it close or win outright in Michigan. This is, like, crucial. Because theoretically, he's got to start making up delegates. He's 70 behind. This is why it's very hard to erase a delegate lead. But let's look one week further than that. March 17th, there are some big states in play there. Illinois, Ohio, and Florida. Florida is the richest prize there with 219 delegates. Your boy will be back in his home state to cover that live. However, right now, the polls for Bernie in Florida aren't bad they're dire. They spell doom. Like, I I, I, I I, don't want to overstate how bad this is. This is a St. Pete poll of 1,882 likely voters in Florida. It, for whatever reason, still contains Michael Bloomberg, who has 14%. Biden has 61%. And Sanders isn't viable at 12. Now, this might be an outlier. But if these numbers are indicative of what he's going to do in Florida. Pause very briefly. This is why you don't talk about Castro. Resume. Resume then that could be it. Like a Biden blowout in Florida makes him very likely to get to 1,991 delegates and that's what he needs. Even if Bernie's hope at this point is to force some kind, just force them at the convention, force the establishment at the convention to bury him, which they will happily do, but it'll be a lot uglier. He's got to be competitive in Florida. There's just too many delegates. Because if he doesn't do well there and Biden at that point is on a glide path, the only two other places that he can seriously think about making up for a delegate lead is New York on April 28th and Pennsylvania on April 28th. It's unlikely that Bernie's going to do better than uh, Biden in his home state of Pennsylvania. So he's going to have to hope to do well in New York. But who knows if he's even going to get there? At least with any kind of real shot. Because I'll tell you what, we're at March 6th now. If it starts to look dire for Bernie, then the question is going to be, how much damage are you willing to inflict on this party before you realize that you've been beaten? And now all of it comes out. All of the establishment media is is, is going to just lean on him. Agent of Trump, Russia, it's all going to be there. Because now they can look like the winners and they can make Bernie look like a sore loser. It's hard to overstate how much Michigan means to the 2020 campaign of Bernie Sanders. Now, obviously, a lot can change between now and then. We learned that from uh, the last week, right? I can't believe that I was in South Carolina a week ago. It feels like three months. Maybe Warren comes out and endorses him. Maybe there is a surprise, yet another surprise in Michigan. But Bernie needed that in 2016 to keep him even close to competitive. He's going to need it in 2020. Because if he doesn't get it, there's not a lot of favorable news coming afterward. What do the facts say? The facts suggest that you absolutely have a Native American ancestor in your pedigree. Okay. Of course, that is a clip from the DNA video that Elizabeth Warren put out before she was even a candidate, actually. So uh, uh, that would be the earliest moment uh, of of the campaign that I was kind of shaking my head at. I I didn't really understand the point of it. Uh, uh, Look, I've talked about Elizabeth Warren throughout this entire campaign. I, I have consistently thought that she is a good candidate that overthinks. There was a lot of overthinking it moments during this campaign. And and now that it's over, I just wanted to highlight two moments that I felt were just preventable, unforced errors. As I'd previously mentioned, that DNA video was very troubling to me, not because it was an embarrassment, and not because it got her in trouble with the you know Native American tribes, but rather because the Pocahontas stuff came up during her first Senate race six years ago. She couldn't pr- effectively deal with it then. And now, six years later, after the president seized on it, she still couldn't. I mean, she made a video that I I still can't find that full video. That full video has been uh, scrubbed from the Internet. It's certainly off all of her official channels, and it has been for months. Uh, so, like, the, the audio that I pulled from there, those are from news reports. But that's why that, that, that video, the, the bungling of that video, to me, felt like, all right, this is a campaign that overthinks itself. So let's move forward. This was the moment, and uh, uh, we're going to go into a little bit more in a second, this political article that just came out as I was recording, all about the campaign looking uh, uh, back on on what they did and, and the decisions that they regretted. But in that political article, they pointed to this October debate as the moment where things started going wrong. And here was the moment that I believe Elizabeth Warren went from front runner to somebody who was flawed enough that she wasn't gonna get a second look. The question here was, will you raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all?
0: Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here. And that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle-class families, costs will go
1: down. Uh, See, right there, right there, right there. She's got to have an answer for that. That was the moment, as it turns out. When you look back, that's the time where she could either seize this momentum And confidently say, yes, taxes will go up. Out-of-pocket expenses will go down. The problem here isn't that she shuffled on an answer. That's fine. Politicians do that all the time. The problem was, is that Biden was on one side of her saying, this is going to cost more than it should. And Bernie was on the other side, not only physically, but also ideologically, saying, yeah. Yeah. Taxes are going to go up, but out-of-pocket expenses are going to go down. Like, this is a gigantic social program, and you're the I've got a plan for that candidate. If you can't answer it, then you're going to look weak. And this led to more backpedaling, where then she put out her uh, her, her own version of Medicare for All, and it was uh, uh, put out over... Two or three weeks in two parts. You know, that was where she outthought herself past that. Her covering for this led her to say that I would do a public option first, and then I would do Medicare for All, which to people that hate Medicare for All reads as, so you're still going to do it? And for people that love Medicare for All, it was the beginning of the snake stuff. It was the beginning of the you're a traitor, that you're backing off of this. You don't have the ideological moorings of Bernie Sanders, which ultimately is kind of the defining, ra- the, 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 the defining relationship of Elizabeth Warren in this race was to Bernie Sanders. She had so many of her uh, proposals that she was just like, yep, I'm with Bernie. And it wound up coming down To this, the second unforced error. This was on another debate stage, although after the official time uh, where they were uh, arguing with each other was over in Des Moines, it was preceded by a story in CNN saying that Bernie Sanders had told Elizabeth Warren that a woman couldn't win. They clashed about that on stage and then Elizabeth Warren made her way to Bernie. Bernie extended his hand for a handshake. And this was the exchange.
0: I think you called me a liar on national TV. What? I think you called me a liar on
1: national you know, TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion? We'll have that Anytime. discussion. You called me. You told me. All right, let's not do it. Now. Not,
0: I don't want to get in mail, I just want to say hi, Bernie.
1: Yeah, good. I hated this move and it's deliberate. Like there's, Politicians are too spatially aware for her to have not done that very deliberately to cause the stir that it caused. And I hated it then as a strategy. I hate it now as a strategy. I think that it makes Elizabeth Warren look weak. I think that it makes her, uh, puts her in in a victim position with, with, with Bernie Sanders. And that's a not, I not great for her image in my opinion. And number two, Certainly not great for the the eventual bridge you need to build with Bernie Sanders voters. Many months ago, I heralded the coming war between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And at that point, I thought she was in the dominant position. All she had to do was keep going with the more electable Bernie thing, the gimmick. I mean, just have that sheen. Never fight with Bernie. Because guess what? Bernie's supporters will attack you. And when that happens, you're going to be able to throw up your hands and say, well, look at these sexist Bernie bros. If you pick the fight, it's the only way you can lose. And that's exactly what happened on that stage. One final thing, and this is from... The Politico article, and I'm just going to read directly from it. Uh, great work by Alex Thompson here. Everybody should go read it. Uh, it is uh, Bailey versus Blood and Teeth, the inside story of uh, Elizabeth Warren's collapse. Two things up top. Number one, and uh, here I'll, I'll read from the article. Elizabeth Warren's campaign brass realized that they would bungled her budget at the worst possible time. Several weeks before Iowa and New Hampshire the Iowa and New Hampshire elections, they discovered their fundraising projections for the fourth quarter of twenty nineteen were far too rosy. The army of organizer that they'd hired when fundraising and polling were at their peak, it ultimately ballooned to over a thousand, had become a straitjacket. Donations nosedive after the october fifteenth debate when Warren was bombarded by her rivals. It's the one we literally just talked about. Strapped for cash, the campaign didn't have enough money to run TV and digital ads that they had originally planned for early contests as they tried to stay afloat in Iowa. Even then, they were forced to obtain a $3 million line of credit at the end of January. Said one staffer, they chose Bailey over blood and teeth, referring to Warren's golden retriever that the campaign made into an omnipresent prop to soften her image. Unforgivable, said that staffer. Blood and Teeth refers to the famous Warren quote from the legislative fight over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which transformed Warren from a respected Harvard academic into a national progressive star. That quote, of course, being my first choice is a strong consumer agency, Warren said then. My second choice is no agency at all and plenty of blood and teeth left on the floor. Which means, friends, that we can now Canonically verify something that has been mentioned on this podcast many times. We have said that the moment that things took a downturn for Elizabeth Warren coincides eerily, almost exactly, with the debut of a gigantic, inflatable version of her dog, Bailey. There was a bizarre viral video of the uh, crowd chanting Big Structural Bailey because she wants to have big structural change. It was Big Structural Bailey. I thought that was a joke. I was just like, "Okay, well, isn't it funny that this thing happened at the time that her poll numbers started to tank, not only nationally, but also in New Hampshire and Iowa. Iowa was where this happened. But now we find out. That not only was her campaign cash-strapped, and I can't imagine getting a custom gigantic balloon of her dog, but also that it was a controversial thing internally to make her dog as big of a thing because she should be focusing on being a tireless advocate for the consumer. Guys! The big structural Bailey curse is real! It's real! Politics! Of course, if you would like to support this show, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you can join the $3 club. You get two bonus episodes each and every week. Uh, One on Monday, one on Thursday. I'm telling you what, these are important, important weeks to have the bonus episodes. A lot of stuff happening. Uh, uh, PX3 Extra People got... You know they, they got the first uh, the first taste of of all the the Buddha Judge dropping out and Amy dropping out like that was a huge episode on Monday. Interviewed my mom for that episode, and then Thursday was the first time that people uh, got got the hot takes on the war and stuff. Now's the time to get on the train. Come on over, TakePoliticsSeriously.com Also, if you have an Audible account. Or you're interested in audiobooks. The audiobook version of my podcast series, Raise the Dead, is available now. Five and a half hours. So we're not going to, I'm not wasting your, uh, your your credit on this one. It also includes a bonus episode that was not included in the podcast. It's all about the mob and Frank Sinatra. It, it, I really like the episode, but. I wanted to save it for the audiobook. So head on over there right now. Audible.com. Search for Raise the Dead, Nixon versus Kennedy, and you will find it right there. My guest today is Eitan Hirsch. He is an associate professor of political science at Tufts. You can check out his book, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Eitan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So obviously when you do a political podcast, you are speaking to people of all stripes and and, uh, uh, politics affects us all. So I I would expect that this would go out to many people. But uh, your area of expertise is fascinating to me in that it's about political hobbyism. People who are fascinated with politics, who consume information about it and yet are not plugged into it. Uh, in terms of a, a participation level. If you could describe political hobbyism, how would you describe it?
0: Yeah, so I usually describe it in short as people who are doing politics uh, primarily for their own intellectual and emotional engagement rather than to get power for the things that they care about. So, you know, it's mostly people who are spending a ton of time on politics uh, every day, like maybe an hour or two a day, but all of that is really most, is about like learning information, sharing information, talking about stuff rather than trying to either like move politicians or move fellow citizens to take some action.
1: So if that's the case, is, is, is this something that's on the rise or, or is, has this always just been a part of the ecosystem but now we can focus on it and isolate it a little bit more?
0: No, it seems like it's on the rise. So we're at a high time in American political history of people interested in politics. So like the 2016 election, for example, saw more people saying they're very interested in the election uh, than ever before. People see big differences between the candidates. A lot of people say like they're afraid of the other party. And so you have a lot of emotional and time engagement, but we're like below historical averages in terms of the number of people who are, you know, members of organizations working or volunteering for campaigns or parties. Um, So yeah, this is definitely something that has increased over time. Uh, You know, there's a long story of the decline of in-person civic engagement over the last, say, 50, 60, 70 years. And what seems to have happened, especially with the rise of the internet, um, is that the time that, you know, People who are interested in politics, specifically engaged, um, know that this stuff is important. They've replaced going to meetings and, uh, you know, working on concrete projects in the political sphere with just kind of sitting at home and, and engaging at it at, 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 like a sports fan would engage in sports fandom.
1: So, would, would would your idea be that because people can engage easier and there are more and more ways that people can share their opinions, that that takes the drive out of maybe uh, uh, leaving their house and, and going to some physical space where they would go knock on doors or, or even lobby local government?
0: Yeah, so there's a number of arguments about why this has increased, right? One is what you're just saying, which is that um, it's not like going to, uh, you know— to participate in say a political party committee or civic organization is harder necessarily than it was 50 years ago but it seems relatively harder compared to the alternative which is having this like shortcut to emotional engagement from your couch so that that has changed the other thing has changed is that this population the hobbyists are mostly like college educated White Americans, and for this population, over time, the status quo has obviously gotten better and better. Right? There's been no military conscription for 50 years. Um, these people are doing really well, and they don't feel um, threatened enough, really, to get off their couches. So um, another thing that's going on is this kind of culture of privilege, which um, people, you know, like uh, Peter Scotchpool, is a political scientist at Harvard, says, you know, basically when, when you know, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, people who were in this demographic, like college-educated citizens, they were, you know, they were pretty rare, and they felt themselves like they were stewards of their communities, like they were they were responsible for things going well. And over time, uh, especially as the college education-educated population has increased, and you know, as things, you know, we've been past um, military conscription and things like that, this population of citizens does not feel um, like things are bad enough, I guess, for them that they have to actually take action. There's also another story about the decline of organizations. So you know, even if you wanted to get involved in a lot of communities, um, groups that used to be quite strong, like political party committees uh, at the local or county level, those have gone into a real decay for a number of reasons. And so a lot of people who maybe want to plug into real politics, like they don't really know know how because of that institutional decay.
1: And so we're defining real politics as an organization that is trying to affect a vote or lobby sitting politicians. Would that be would that be fair?
0: Yeah, the way I see it is, you know, political participation is working with others with goals and strategies to influence the government. So you might influence the government, like you're saying, by, you know, advocacy toward a politician or by, you know, getting your fellow citizens to to vote a certain way but either way you're operating with a goal and a strategy and it's targeted to the government and again that's not how like something 80 or 90 percent of people who are engaged in politics already the way that they're engaging it just doesn't describe their behaviors
1: so is part of this just in its on the premise an indictment of i'm feeling angry so let me tweet about it and and have that be the endorphin rush uh, of, you know the, the the beginning, middle, and end of it.
0: I mean, I think that's where it starts. So, I mean, I think a lot of people who are reading this book uh, are people who care a lot about politics. They care a lot about you know their country and community, and they and they are worried um, about the direction of things. But. Um, this first of all, what it does is it kind of assesses their behavior. You know, that's how this started for me. I, I, I was kind of looking at a range of behaviors from news consumption to activism, voting, uh, partisan cheerleading, and just asking this question like, what does this all amount to? And I think the sad truth is that it amounts to very little, which is a, a disconcerting answer. I mean, a pe- you know, a, a lot of people are justifiably feel like, uh, hey, like it doesn't feel nice to call all of their engagement <laughs> a hobby. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's true, and it's true because they have, I think, probably deeper values in their hearts than are conveyed in their behavior. And so the book is uh, trying to figure out, okay, like, well, why do we behave in politics this way, Um, whether it's good or bad? Because I think a lot of people want to say, like, oh, maybe this is – you know, maybe by um, uh, watching a lot of cable news or spending a lot of time on Twitter, I'm, like, learning information that's going to help me engage one day. Uh, and I, I have an argument that that's not likely to be true, but then you know a lot of a lot of the book is about what the alternative is. So like, if you actually do care about um, working for better political goals, like what what does that look like?
1: So uh, there. They're- Seems to be online and, and it even kind of stretches into like, OK, well, I don't care if I offend my neighbor, if I offend my family member, if I offend somebody else in my social circle. I'm just going to keep posting these things because that helps the cause. I'm going to I'm going to raise awareness. And, and, and the fact that I'm speaking on this, the fact that I'm, I'm uh, uh, bringing this to the fore is important, even to the detriment of uh, uh, some of my other social ties. Uh, you're saying that that if, if people shared a few less things and went out and did more to actually affect that change, they could probably keep their family and friends and be more effective politically.
0: Yeah, you know, outside of the political sphere, it, like let, let's define power as trying to get someone to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. If you can do that, you have some power. Yeah. and. You know, we want that kind of power in our workplace sometimes. We not get colleagues or bosses to like do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. Well, uh, you know, I have kids, I all the time want to get them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And for the most part, everywhere in the world where we're trying to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do, we have to use patience and empathy and try to figure out where their interests lie and meet them where they are. Like, that's how you do it. And we also all know that when you engage on politics online, the way you've described, like, we're not practicing any of those skills um, because that's not really the point. We're not really uh, trying to to move people. We're really trying to more like get stuff off our own chest or, you know, feel some, um, feel some, superiority that we have some knowledge like it's just a totally different framework for behavior than in the in the realm of actual power seeking
1: there is a phrase online and i, I don't know if you're familiar with it but it seems to kind of dovetail with what you're talking about uh, virtue signaling it's often used as kind of a a, a slur online that that this is uh, uh the way that you are acting the way that you're identifying yourself you are more about just signaling the fact that you are of uh, aware or aligned with a cause than really anything else uh, w- would you say that the kind of behavior you're talking about is can be described as virtue signaling
0: it could be yeah i mean you know i think in a lot of ways it's, what it is is like the it, it's the you do when you do hobbyism right like some emotional high some form of catharsis like that's your whole goal right that's your goal in real politics, that stuff is usually like a means to an end. like it gets you excited about or mo- motivated to take some action. So you know if i'm like um, if I'm really invested in, say I don't know LGBT rights, yeah. you know i I don't just put like a rainbow flag on my Facebook icon or whatever, like maybe I get energized by that and then take some action. Or, you know, a better example, I think probably is Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of, I think, virtue signaling about Black Lives Matter. And the energy around that uh, could be leveraged into really concrete things like figuring out what's going on in police departments at the local level in everyone's community that leads to um, abuse of African-American residents. Like, You could do that, but if the end all and be all is you saying, I care about Black Lives Matter, I care about this or that, then, like, you're doing it for yourself. (laughs) You're not doing it because you actually want power for this, you know, cause.
1: It seems like part of this is is really just a a call for more civic engagement, like, that, that, that if you are not pushing the ball forward and you are not kind of working realistically within a structure to get something done, then really anything else is is kind of marginally useless
0: yeah i mean what i think is that the way people think about politics today and and this are you know and there's a lot of like trends we talk about in the book about you know the the nationalization of the media and all that stuff um i think a lot of people feel like they have an obligation to pay attention to big important things that are happening and because those big important things are, like far away and like so colossal, they have very little role to play in it. So they'll feel like it's important that I spend my time watching a congressional hearing, or a presidential debate. Like those things are big. Like a big election, the impeachment trial. I have no role as a citizen to play in that, but I feel obligated to do it. You know, I think the call of the book is like, you know, what the organizers are doing very well that I study in the book. They're what they they bring to politics the mentality that like they're not trying to um, pay attention to important things. They are actually trying to be important, which is they're engaging in roles where they are meaningfully changing other people's behavior um, and lives, really. I mean they are uh, you know entitled to their one vote that they get as a citizen, but then like some of the people I study in the book, like they are said to control a thousand votes. They can they can create a precinct that has three times the turnout of all the precincts around it, which gets the attention <laughs> of politicians to care about what they want. You know they can move stuff, and actually that form of politics, um, which I think particularly on the political left feels like parochial and unimportant, is actually what politics is all about and is tremendously powerful um, because actually very few people are doing it so yeah, I mean, look, the book is part analysis, like, what are we doing here? Uh, <laughs> all of these people who are spending all this time on politics, like, how do we make sense of it? But there is this normative goal, which is like, well, what should you be doing instead? And I think there's a real clear answer to that, which is like, get power. Um, and again, that's actually something people feel uncomfortable with, like, uh, I don't know if I want power, you know? Well, if you care about a certain set of issues or candidates or something like that, then you probably do want to empower those values by winning people over. And, um, you know, I I think, you know, that's what the stories in the book are trying to do.
1: You mentioned the nationalization of the media, and I would like to go back to that for a second, because there is this this thing I can't shake with our modern political world. And part of it is that we really don't have a monoculture anymore in in an Internet society. Everything is sort of self-selected. But the one thing that does seem to affect everybody, no matter what, our politics, and specifically national politics, which are so easily weaponized to get people uh, 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 fired up, uh, do you think that that's the cause of the nationalization of the media or the fact that, that now we, we are just so dialed in to these big macro issues because they are kind of unsolvable and and therefore fascinating?
0: Uh, I think we're dialed into them at a national level. Obviously, that's what our appetite is for. I mean, we've really shown as citizens what we want out of the media, which is like basically like national gossip and you know horse race stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's particularly this class of like well-educated voters that want least information about their local communities. You know, they're the ones who are just going in droves to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, to, you know, to national news and like, you know, and at the expense of local news. And one of the things that is going on here is a real indictment on their issues that they describe as important. You know, so for example, Democrats will say like racial equality is a really important issue and that's what I care about at the national level. But many of them, especially like the kind of the college educated white liberals who live in, you know, towns with extremely restrictive zoning laws that are purposely designed to like keep African Americans out, like they 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 want to say that those issues I care about, but they, you know, Like look at where they live and how little interested they are in working on those issues. Same with the environment. You know, um, you you know, it's like very easy. uh, You know, like a lot of parents around the kind of well-to-do, rich, democratic area where I live will like gladly send their kids to march for the climate when the climate. Goals are like international or national level goals. Yeah. But, you know, they'll let their kids skip school for that stuff. But they notice won't let their kids skip school for like marching on their town hall and saying, like, we actually want to do things that will be extremely expensive for our residents to save the environment. Like, that doesn't happen um, for the most part. And so I think what's happening is, you know, it's because um, people who are like pretty, you know, uh, well, you know, well to do where they have good jobs. Like, I think one of the things that hobbyism is showcasing is, uh, the things that they're willing to go to bat for, it's just like very small relative to what they say they're willing to go to bat for, you know, it, you know, on Facebook.
1: That's fascinating because it does seem like there is this gulf that, that you can say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and spend an afternoon, uh, uh saying, you know, uh, this is the worst thing that ever happened that Trump, came out of the Paris Accords, right? And and you can scream and yell about it, but you know either Trump's going to get voted out or he's not, and either way, we may or may not be back in the Paris Accords. There's really no end to that, right? It, it just kind of feels good in the moment, and it feels good to write that tweet, and it feels good to maybe take that Instagram picture at the rally, Uh, uh but I, I guess I never really thought of it like that, that there's that there's no kind of real consequence or, or teeth to it, or uh, that, that if it doesn't lead into other action locally, then maybe there's, you know, a, a question of exactly how worthy it is.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think when people start, you know, if people say have who have strong concerns about the environment, do get involved at local level, they learn a couple things. So, you know, they learn from one thing that they like if they live in a liberal area, for example, they learn that like a lot of people aren't as liberal as they thought they were. And they also maybe learn that they're not as liberal as they thought they were. And so When you practice politics at the local level and you actually have to move individual people, right? Like I need to convince this city councilor. I need to convince my neighbors to help me convince the city councilor. It's very hard to approach politics in the way we approach it online, which is like this brinkmanship where like the the other side is evil and terrible and dangerous and our side is very virtuous. Like, you know, when you start to work on these issues in real life, like it's just you can't break things down that way
1: man yeah that is that is so so interesting uh uh that that there is uh you know this this national game that we can play uh how did you get fascinated by this
0: yeah i mean i it was really uh trying to look at a big picture of what political science research could actually tell us about behavior you know like it, like from the perspective of a voter like what what are they, how are they spending their time and you know, Case after case, this whole thing just looked weird. It, like, it looked like the people doing politics were just not really doing politics. So you know, for example, a, co- a colleague and I, we were looking at petitions. So if you, you, know, if you ask people a lot of questions about activism, online petitions is like the most popular form of so-called activism. Sure. And we studied all the petitions that were sent to the Obama White House. Um and like the thing that came out of that study was shocking, which is that, like, if you look at all the petitions that were focused on you know big domestic issues, uh, yeah. education, healthcare, taxation, et cetera, et cetera, those amounted to five percent of the petitions sent to the White House. <laughs> okay, so like what was everything else? Everything else was kind of like small issues, like you know, the FDA should regulate premium cigars, or, you know, we should like recognize diaphragmic hernia awareness day as a country, or yeah. like you know, like we like, and and so, so
1: and and this are, was and this are, was this was publicized by the Obama administration right that was change.org where where uh, if if it got above a certain number then the administration said that they would look into it is that is that, are those things It they not change.org about?
0: but they did say yeah if you got enough signatures they were you know they would they would they promised to respond right gotcha. exactly okay. um and so you know and so things like that it just looks so frivolous what we're doing you know and um and and that's true for you know for everything. Like so for news consumption, people are spending all this time on news. But if you ask someone who's a news junkie, like, okay, well how how could I, you know, get involved on some issue I care about, um, the news junkie's like, oh, like I don't know anything about that. I could just like tell you how you know about the Mueller report or you know, like some <laughs> you know like they don't they're not following any of the news that would help them be citizens. So um So I think you know that's what um you know all that put together made me think like okay you know something like sports fandom or any kind of kind of hobby like you know in my house we are we're we're kind of at home foodies you know we watch the Food Network or we'll you know that kind of stuff I mean that's what politics seems like really when you look at it from the perspective of what the typical political junkie is doing.
1: Is this maybe then just a a a another layer? Beyond what has already existed as the the, the class of people that are trying to, to 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 move the football one way or another, that now there just happens to be a bunch of people in the stands that are very passionate about their teams.
0: Well, it's not like these people have added. It, it, no, like uh, these people who are spending two hours a day on politics. These are the <laughs> kinds of people that a generation or two generations ago were actually taking concrete actions in their communities. So it's it's not just like um, an additional okay. segment of the population. It's a segment of the population that really has the energy and time to be engaged in politics, and they're doing it in this kind of useless way. It's also, you know, I think there's pretty good evidence that what they're doing is not just a waste of time, but actually damaging to the system and polarizing. Um, and so, you know, one of the examples I use of this is is the way that like we watch congressional hearings or presidential debates and like whenever a politician um does something like really provocative all, there's a whole class of people who reward that politician with like low dollar donations uh and just attention in the news and so now when you when you look at a congressional hearing um or a debate stage like you can see the politicians are essentially like constantly trying to make viral videos of themselves yeah and like they're doing that because of us <laughs> like we're the ones who are uh, rewarding them when they when they act like that and we actually you know the most kind of intensely following citizens like they don't want their politicians to like compromise or get stuff done in congress they really want them to like make a show yeah. to to prove that like for the next election that they're going to be better situated to pass something and and so nothing can get done like that you know and 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 that's again that's not One of the, I think, innovations of this project is I think a lot of people, both in political science and in the public, are always looking for institutions to blame, like this is gerrymandering or this is the electoral College. And this book is really about the voter, the citizen, like we're the ones that are making politicians act that way. Um, And it's part because we are taking a lot of pleasure out of watching this show rather than doing – you know a real concrete form of politics which is you know more like community service which is like moving the ball forward in our own communities
1: so really we are just rewarding performance artists and and whether they are we are yeah whether they are smirking trolls or or delivering the aaron sorkin speech that we always wished a politician would deliver we are giving that they are giving us what we want and we are rewarding them with small donor donations off our iphones
0: that's right. So the ones who are good at that will get rewarded and the ones who are bad at that, they won't even run. Like, because who would want to do this unless you'd want to, you know, to, to to be in that circuit. All
1: right. Uh one last question, because I know people listening to this are gonna want me to ask you. The, the the show that you are on right now, politics, 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 is primarily dedicated to uh, it's been compared a lot to a sports program that that I, I try to take an apolitical look at kind of the analysis of the the X's and O's of where I see the race, who people are trying to uh, uh, talk to, whether or not they're doing it effectively, uh, and then taking the the results and and seeing how how good we did. Am I actively harming the political process? Look,
0: I think you'd be actively harming it if if, if you were to convey to your uh, listeners that like what they're doing here listening to us is being engaged with politics. Gotcha. Like this is something that they might enjoy, this might be something that might inform their um you know how they think about politics and all that's great, but it isn't politics. And if they want to be engaged in politics, they have to do one particular thing, which is move other people. And if you're going to move other people, then you got to do it like in your community. So look, I don't everyone can have whatever leisure activity they want. Sure. Um, and I'm not going to judge them for doing it, but I think in politics, unlike in sports fandom, we do go down this path of thinking, like, by by like learning a lot of facts, um, we're doing politics. And, you know, again, like, no one watching SportsCenter thinks they're playing football, but I think there are actually a heck of a lot of people who are um, real news junkies who think they're engaged in politics, and, you know, I think, you know, our country needs them to do more than that.
1: Yeah. So maybe it's all the sanctimonious uh, political podcasts that that you know uh, paint themselves as activism like that that those are the ones that are actively doing harm to to the political world
0: yeah I mean look people have different, like you know when once this book came out Nate Silver on Twitter said something snarky about it like you know that I was being uh, overly judgmental for how people want to spend their time and like look if you run a website that's creating politics as like this you know as really like a, a like a sports show um then you can i think hold both of these things in the same in your head at the same time which is yeah. that like this is interesting to people but it's not politics you know i think that you don't want to be so take the view that you know you know don't judge anyone like, we actually like if you think we have political problems in the world we, we need more people to do stuff
1: yeah yeah well, you know, I, this actually I thought that this interview was going to make me feel very bad about myself because I, I think that you you kind of uh, we are we're driving to the heart of something that I, I like about the show. Uh, uh, but but uh, I, I feel like now I feel better about it, because if there is one thing that I try to get forward on on this program, at the very least, is that everyone's a voter. Right. And the only way that you win is by convincing other people to come over to your side. and And, and that's what effective political messaging is. And so if you are number one, I will state clearly and in your presence. This is not politics, right? This is definitely just me talking into a microphone about a shared experience that we could all talk about. Uh, uh, but, but beyond that, I, I do think that, that there is a worthwhileness of, uh, of understanding where the issues are so you can better plug into it. And if, if I do do a service, then maybe that's it. That understanding at least the lay of the land and then encouraging people to go interact with it further.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I would just add one thing. I think that the kind of politics that I am advocating for, some people at the who are interested in national politics think is like kind of parochial beneath them. Like what it actually means to move 100 voters in your direction, is you know some people think that's kind of in the trenches and boring and something that someone else should be doing. And you know I think it's important that that shows like this. You know people say say. Um, That's actually the that's that's where the that's where the heroes are, you know, and and we should actually be uh, more interested in what they're doing and and actually like try to try to emulate what they're doing.
1: Well, uh, uh, I think that's a great place to leave it, and, and I wouldn't feel bad about Nate Silver casting shade on you. Maybe he was just dizzy from watching his primary model show five different winners over the last <laughs> five weeks. Uh, Eitan Hirsch is an associate professor of political science at Tufts, and you can check out his book, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Aton, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that'll wrap it up for today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier from TakePoliticsSeriously.com, David Milkleg. Dennis, Brad, The Daily Tech News Show, oh my god, Louis, J. Milius, Paul, Michael, Jonathan, The Jen, Nicholas, Adam, Olin, and Angela, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Will, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Squids, Mixtape, Adam, Carr, D, Laser, Andy, Paul, and Mike. You want to join them? You know where to head, takepoliticsseriously.com. A reminder that my brand new audiobook, Raise the Dead, featuring a bonus episode that was not on the podcast feed, is available now on Audible. Head on over there. And if you liked it, either as a podcast or as an audiobook, reviews really, really, really move the needle. So help me out there. If you want to follow me on social media, it is Justin R. Young on Twitter, Justin R. Young on Instagram. Justin R Young on Twitch where I live stream 2 or 3 days a week. Till next time. Is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more, man, they're out here talking about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all hopes you have enjoyed this program.